What's going on, Just Goes to Show listeners, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, this is your co-host Ridge. We're back after the long, dark summer. We're back. Yeah, Chris over here as well, returning from our hiatus a few months off on vacation. But it's good to be vlogging back in here and uh, getting some good Premier League news out to the, the good listeners of the pod here. Uh, excited to be back, Jack. Yeah, over the summer, uh, a couple major things have happened. Jack got a Just Goes to Show tattoo. Um, <laughs> not actually. I did consider it. Um, but Chris is relocated out of Chicago, the Windy City, City of Angels, the Big Apple. Um, he's now in Detroit. Um, so Chris is recording remotely, so we've got a little bit of different audio just uh, to let you listeners know. But um, you know, obviously we're tech experts, so we're we're fighting on. Yeah, we're still working out some kinks here with the audio, so uh, we'll we'll hopefully uh, be able to go smoothly here and make sure that everything sounds good. No complaints on that. And but yeah, I've been back in Michigan here for a couple of months. Um, you know, getting back with the family, some of the friends from around here, seeing some over in Detroit, which has been fun, uh, but keeping the pod alive here remotely, so I'm excited to kind of get into the things, and uh, really excited for the time to start back up here in a couple of weeks. Yeah, the pod's got a, got a heartbeat. we got a pulse, so things are going to be covered. It, it was such and go there for a little bit. <laughs> it was, yeah. We CPR trained, and we, we revived it. Yeah, it was flatlining on the, on the heart monitor for a mm-hmm. second, um, mm-hmm. but we're back. Uh, so what we're going to be covering, we're, we're going to talk a little about the world of football because a lot happened has, has happened over the summer. We had some international football, women's football, touch on some of the headlines. We'll be able to cover everything. Then we're going to get into our beloved Premier League. We'll talk about some some uh, kind of more social headlines, management changes, things like that, um, and then get into what we all care about, which is the transfer window, the transfer business, who's making what moves, what moves are effective, and what should we be watching over the upcoming season uh, when everyone's inevitably tuning in here uh, two weeks out for the start of the Prem. So, um, Chris, we, we kind of we hit a couple headlines to start. Um, there were basically five major cups that went down internationally, uh, one being the Women's World Cup. You had the U- UEFA Nations League, Gold Cup, uh, African Cup of Nations, and the Copa America. So those are five international tournaments, four for men's, obviously, for different regions of the world, um, and one is women's. So I guess initial reaction for the Women's World Cup, because that was the biggest, uh, and the Americans won it. So, Merca. Yeah, I actually watched a lot of this one. This was the one I was able to tune into the most. Uh, it was really entertaining. I was impressed. I was expecting it to be pretty good, and it was nice, the U.S. being one of the favorites. Um, England also progressing pretty far, and I had a really good time watching it. Um, the U.S., I think they were the best team in it, but it was it was a little bit dicey for a couple of those fixtures. Obviously, there was a lot going on here politically with it as well, and like it was really divisive, which was weird, but it was really entertaining. Uh, as far as the biggest thing for me that came out of it, though, something I wanted to touch on, and we've talked about it in past pods, though, was just the role of VAR. Uh, it's something that's coming to the Prem this season, and it was, like, massive in every single match of the entire tournament. Yeah. Um, like, major penalty decisions, penalties that were retaken because the keepers were coming off their line too quick. Uh, it was it was bonkers. Do you have any thoughts on the tournament as a whole or VAR or anything about that? Yeah, it's it's really difficult to and also with VAR, I, I feel like I've been we've obviously been critical of it on the pod and even like watching you know, like some of the positions and some of the play, like it's a different play style when you want when you watch women's football um there's a different speed to the play positionally um you know they obviously it's not like a totally different game but you know there are some different um some differences in the rate of play and things like that and so that also creates like another realm where like i feel like everything in var i've seen has been like in a certain context and then um to kind of add a different speed of play to the game was really interesting um and yeah, you want to touch yeah, on that? Yeah, well, I was going to say the other thing I was thinking about is I don't really like VAR when it comes to penalty decisions. That's where it really um, it slows down the game a lot and it changes a lot of things uh, when it comes to like how the game is played. The one place I do like it and where I think it's really effective is for offside calls. Now, the the issue though that I saw in the Women's World Cup that I hadn't really noticed before is with these offside calls, it kind of changes the way the game gets played as well where the officials basically never call offsides if things are close because if they don't call it, they can always go back and fix it. 
So it, it, it really changes a lot. And almost, I think when during the World Cup, it was something close to like 35 out of the 40 decisions that got reviewed for VAR ended up getting overturned. So what's happening a lot of the time is they won't be calling a penalty, they won't be calling offside because they know they can fall back to that VAR and change the call from there, which I think is really interesting. And I don't know, it's going to be an interesting transition to the Premier League. I think a lot of viewers aren't going to like it at first because it's going to slow down games, but it's the world we live in right now, so it's, it's inevitable at this point. But it was interesting to see it really uh, in full effect over the course of a major tournament, and I think it definitely impacted the game a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it slows everything down, right? Um, so, I, I, obviously, though, pleasing to see America win it. Like you said, it was it was a divisive tournament, which was I think you said it perfectly, which was weird, but um, good for the Americans to win it. They're obviously an international powerhouse, some huge names, really good for the next generation. Um, you know, my sister, uh, both our sisters played growing up, um, and I know my my, we, yeah. my my sister named her cat Mia Ham. Um, so like yeah, to give you an idea of like how <laughs> I remember Brandy Chastain, yeah, Brandy like how impactful, yeah, like how impactful some of these these role models are for for you know girls and young women out there, and so that that's really cool. Um, but then you know transitioning out of uh, the women's World Cup, you obviously had four major tournaments internationally on the men's side. Um, you had the U- UEFA Nations League, which is kind of like almost like the Euros, but not really. Um, and then you had the goal. Yeah, I mean, the, well, the difference is that it's played over a much longer period of time, and then over the summer was the last couple of rounds of it. Right. Um, but in the respect of the teams that are eligible for it, yeah, it's basically the Euros, just over the course of a season or two, right? Right. It's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like the entire Champions League as opposed to, like, the Final 16. Um, right. So uh, Portugal pulled away with the, the uh, UEFA Nations League victory, which means Cristiano Ronaldo won another international trophy, which um, I think over the last year or so, a lot more people are like Team Messi in the Ronaldo-Messi debate, but uh, R- Ronaldo's got the international silverware. Um, and the Portugal team is really, really hard to beat internationally. They defend really, really well. Um, a couple good Premier League stars in that team, Rui Patricio in goal. Um, you've, uh, they have Ruben Neves in central midfield who came off the bench a little bit. Um, so, you know, some decent players in, in, in that team. Um, you also saw the Dutch... young players too, like Joe Felix. Yeah, Joe Felix, exactly. Um, and then you also saw the Dutch side go, speaking of young players, you saw the Dutch side go pretty far in the tournament. Um, they have a whole, they have a plethora of kind of like a new wave of Dutch players. Frank de, Frank de Jong, um, a lot of the the players from that IX uh, team that went... The league, yeah. yes, who, who went far in the Champions League last, last year. So, um, some good teams to watch out for, but uh, Portugal pulled away, and that was pretty much my take is like they're pretty good in Europe they they seem to dominate all the European competitions which you wouldn't necessarily expect but you look at their squad and they are talented it's just when Ronaldo uh, eventually moves on here we'll see if that dominance continues but I don't really have much else on that uh, if we move over to the Gold Cup I don't know how much you watched of that I saw a few of the US matches um, and really I think it just comes down to the final it's the US Mexico and the CONCACAF that seems like those are the two teams that are always duking it out and Mexico was able to pull it out of the U.S. Uh, in the final in Chicago but do you have any thoughts on that overall I have a couple of things yeah so uh, what I recently learned uh, according to Moises uh, my my sister's significant other again sister who is hey, the man, yeah, Kim, Kim Man Moy, shout out DCFC Kim Man Moy, um, who is uh, his family's uh, Mex- of Mexican heritage. He told me this past weekend that Chicago has the largest Mexican population or like largest Hispanic relative population in the whole of the U.S., um, which kind of surprised me. Like it's not like Miami or like LA or you know somewhere I guess closer to a Hispanic speaking pocket of the country of the world. Or San Antonio, yeah. Right. Um, and it was just like it was like a Mexico home game, and it was in Chicago at Soldier Field, which was super crazy. Right. So the commentators were saying that about ninety percent of the supporters of the game were uh, Mexico supporters. It's which insane. It's just like insane. It's like in the heart of the U.S. in the Midwest and. It's basically a road game for the U.S. And the game was like, I mean, I know there's a rivalry, but it was over-the-top chippy. There was a point where um, it was so long ago, I'm trying to think of what player it was. It was it was I think it was Josie Altidori on the ground. Um, well, he got jumped on. Well, there was a couple on. of moments, but um, one of the U.S. players got choked out 
right in front of the referee. Yeah, it was Weston but, McKinney, yeah. Yeah, Weston McKinney, and I'm trying to think of that player. I, I just slipped my mind. I'm dumb. But um, he literally choked him out in front of the ref, and the ref saw it, broke it up, didn't even reward a yellow card. There were no cards in the entire game. And I literally was watching this like someone's going to die out there. It was insane. Um, but, I mean, looking at it, the U.S. have a couple of good young players. Christian Pulisic was, like, dominant uh, in that game and in other games in the tournament. Weston Kenny's pretty good. So they have a couple of good young players. Um, but they're still not quite up to par with Mexico. And they just got a lot of things to figure out, like whether it's with their manager, their play style. Um but it seems like they're moving in the right direction, which is good because we have a World Cup coming in a few years here. And having not qualified the last time, I think they're going to be in a much better spot to qualify this time around and make more of an impact. Yeah, and it's and it's funny too. When Mexico beats the U.S., you can like feel what a massive cultural victory that is. It's like the U.S. is so dominant in, in almost every athletic competition, you know, worldwide. And then when but like the, Mexico beats the U.S. like two three times a year, and you can tell like how much they care about that victory, you know. Um, right. So, you know, all power to, to them. And they do have a decent international side, but they won the Gold Cup. Um, and then pivoting over to the African Cup of Nations. African Cup of Nations, I actually watched a good amount of, so a lot more than I watched of the Gold Cup, uh, mainly because I was trying to keep up with some of the Premier League players who I who I follow who are in the tournament. Um, Cheju Kuyate, uh, captain Senegal for... Um, and he's obviously the Crystal Palace central midfielder. Um, and Wilfred Zaha, Crystal Palace uh, winger, attacker, uh, played regularly for Ivory Coast as well as Jonathan Kodja from Villa. Um, so I watched a few Ivory Coast games. And uh, Yannick Blasi played for Democratic Republic of Congo. We like Yala. So I watched a few of them. And I watched Algeria play three times. And they were just dominant. Uh, Algeria has a, has a pretty good team. Internationally, they got Riyad Mahrez, uh, Islam Samani, who plays up top, um, former Crystal Palace central midfielder, um, who went and played. It'll come back to me in a second. Um, who played for Nottingham Forest? Um, so th- there, there's some some. I mean, good uh, Guardiola, Adrian Guardiola, um, and that, that. I mean that. Algeria team didn't lose a game all tournament, so they were brilliant. They won best team of the tournament. Uh, they were really hard to beat by anybody else. Yeah, actually, I didn't get to watch much much of this. Um, you really had to like kind of dig deep for streams, and I guess I just didn't do that. <laughs> I dug, yeah, I, I dug. Because we're gonna get into him a little bit later. We'll touch on him, but. For the Ivory Coast, was Nicolas Pepe playing much for them? Uh, he played a little bit. Um, I, he honestly didn't play that much though. Okay. Well, anyway, yeah, Algeria kind of ran away with it, and it was really interesting to see the teams that progressed far in there uh, because there were a couple of teams that you would have thought, like, would have made more of a splash, and then it was, like, Madagascar in the semifinals, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, It was a a weird, I don't know. I I think Algeria is being a pretty good team, but not, like, dominant when it comes to the African combination. So it was interesting. I think a lot of those teams have good players, but when it comes to the African football it doesn't always mesh well when it comes to the, the national teams and like teams aren't that good at like piecing their best players together in a way I don't know like, yeah it just doesn't always show it's kind of like it's kind of like the inverse of like Italian football right when you watch like Italy has a stereotype of being really strong defensively really difficult to score against um, you watch Italy sometimes it's boring and then you watch this uh, the African Afri- African Cup of Nations and you have a bunch of teams with a bunch of really really skilled attackers um like ivory coast max grado wilfred zaha jonathan kodja nicholas pepe um they're bringing all these players off the bench who are you know premier league talent attackers but you look you know their goalkeeper plays in like the fourth division in belgium and um, this was very interesting like when you watch the dynamic it just doesn't always seem like the most talented teams end up winning, but I don't know. It's it's just like that's an, always an interesting tournament to follow, I think, because some crazy stuff happens, and most teams still do have like one or two pretty recognizable players that are fun to watch, like a Sala or a Zaha or a Ayu or you know you name it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't comment too much on this one specifically because I didn't get to watch it. But hats off to Algeria, uh, and then the last one, the Copa America was pretty interesting itself uh, with some headlines. Brazil took that one, but I don't even think that was the biggest thing. Brazil won it without Neymar, but the big headline really was more around Messi, I think. Yeah, so Argentina lost to Brazil in the semifinal, um, and 
Messi came out very publicly and said, I never do this. I never speak out publicly. I never complain. But um, the Copa America is rigged for Brazil to win. They're always going to win. Um, you know, the, the, the tournament's rigged, and uh, it's, meant for, it's meant for Brazil to come out on top, um, which he, like, he, there's been hints of that before. He, like, retired from international football and came back. He captained Argentina in this tournament. They didn't. Argentina never looked good. Shout out Alex Zermer. Like you know, I watched him a few times in the tournament with with him. My, my buddy in Chicago, he was Argentinian, and they just never looked good. Like they just don't play together. They got like Aguero out there with Messi, and they're like running into the same places. Messi's a class above everybody because he can play anywhere. But some of their other players just they don't they don't fit together. You know. Yeah, they never seem to put together uh, on the international stage, and. Messi was obviously very frustrated. I mean, saying it's rigged kind of just makes him look childish. And then in their third place game, he got sent off. I think it was only his like, second red card ever or something. Um, and it, it wasn't like a blatant red card. He kind of was like avoiding an altercation and still got sent off. But um, it's not a good look for him. The other thing I noticed that was really weird that I had to like do some research on for the Copa America, I didn't realize this until this year, but there are only 10 teams that actually – are eligible to play from South America, but to make the tournament work better, they want 12 teams in there. So every tournament, they invite two different countries from outside South America to play in it. Generally, they'll do like the US, Mexico, teams that are in North America or Central America. But since the Gold Cup was going on, they couldn't do that. I don't know if you saw this, but Japan and Iran were both playing in the Copa America this year. And I was thinking about it, like, I don't think either of them got out of the group stage. But imagine if, like, Japan just won the Copa America. Yeah, J- Japan just storms the beaches of, like, Sao Paulo and just, you know, comes out, like, victorious. That'd be unreal. I was looking at the table and I was like, wait a second, Japan is not in South America. What's going on here? So I had to look into it and it was really, really weird. I don't know if that'll happen again or if it was just, like, a weird coincidence this year with everything lining up at the same time. But that was bizarre um, yeah. but that's basically all my thoughts on the Copa America maybe in the future the Copa invites like a, the USA women's team in the tournament or something instead and we get like you know that's probably a long ways in the future but maybe who knows that like reminds me of uh, when someone will be like oh man the Alabama football team could beat the Cleveland Browns yeah. and see what happens yeah. you know um, but anyway yeah weird but Brazil wins that so that's kind of the recap of the international competition so I think there yeah so as much, and as much as we would love to talk about those all day let's get into the Premier League this is what we all care about this is what the listeners care about we we are the so. we are a Premier League podcast yeah we hope you care um, we're almost 20 minutes in here so we better start caring now um, major headlines let's touch on these quickly Chris we've got I mean manager changes there's only two that have happened over the summer uh, Maurizio Sarri went back to Italy to manage Ju- Juventus so no more sorry ball for Chiss um, but wait, but at least he can have a six back. Yeah, he can. He can now can smoke again on the sideline. He's gonna be peaceful. Um, and they brought in, of course, Frank Lampard, um, which was it was only a matter of time till that happened. Um, so former former captain, former player is now the manager uh, at Chelsea. Yeah, and so I mean Lampard did good things this year at Derby. He got him into the Championship playoff. They weren't phenomenal, but he had a good season. Uh, obviously, the reason why he's getting this opportunity so early is because of his pedigree with Chelsea as a player. Uh, but the interesting thing, too, is the timing of it all coming in with this transfer ban. It's a very difficult situation to be in. Chelsea historically do not give their managers a whole lot of time to succeed, and they're they're pretty quick to ask somebody. But you think with Lampard being a club legend and kind of having an excuse if he needs it with the transfer ban, he's going to get at least two full seasons probably to, to get the job done here. And honestly, I, I kind of like the move for Chelsea at this point. I feel like they um, were decent under Sarri, but they had a lot of issues with players and the manager getting long in the locker room chemistry where I think Lampard will be a pretty good move for them. It's it's a, it's the perfect move for Chelsea. They get to rebrand. They get to go... They get to go younger. They get to go local and homegrown, just like Frank Lampard and John Terry were. Um, so that you're going to see the likes of Tammy Abraham coming to the team this season. Um, Christian Pulisic, again, young. You're going to see a really young Chelsea team this year. And like you said, they have the perfect narrative, which is, oh, we have a transfer ban. 
and we've got a new coach who's called Legend. Like, it, it, it's just going to be a case of do the owner, does, you know, Abramovich run out of patience with Lampard before he starts delivering results, or how much time does he give him? Because, like you said, traditionally, he sacked managers very quickly. So, um, if Abramovich can have some patience because of the transfer ban, then it's the perfect hire. But that's the only variable that, that could explode in that in that equation right and that'll be a narrative we kind of go through or take a look at throughout the season but just kind of wanted to touch on that the other managerial change is quite interesting at newcastle uh for those that haven't followed it mike ashley the newcastle owner has been looking to sell the club for which seems like a decade now um he just hates being the owner of newcastle and won't give anyone any money and now there's all these stories Rafa benitez is gone Apparently, Ashley was saying that Benitez only cared about money, didn't care about the club or any of the players, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Rafa Benitez is a pretty respected manager. He's out. In comes Steve Bruce. Steve boy. Uh, we, we know Steve Bruce well. He was manager at Villa for close to two seasons before they brought in Dean Smith and shot up the table and got promoted. So what, what do you think is going to happen here, Jack? Uh, I think Steve Bruce is an absolute. He's a mis- very negative manager, um, and I think if he has a, re- a really good squad at his disposal, like let's not forget Villa had probably the best squad in the championship and made the playoff. If he's a really good squad at his disposal, um, can get some results. He doesn't have that at Newcastle, and it's going to be a bad season. They're actually when we do the preview pod, ne- you know, next week, um, they're going to be really, really close, if not in my bottom three, to get relegated. Um, so I think they're in deep, deep trouble this year. I think they're in a spot where they're probably cl- closer to 20 than they are to 10 in the table. But Steve Bruce, because he's so negative, you'd think they'll be okay defensively, and they will probably be able to squeak out some matches here and there. I don't know. It'll be interesting. Um, I actually want to talk a little bit about their transfer business, too, here in a minute. But those are the two big managerial changes. Um, a couple of other things that are not quite as football-related that we wanted to touch on. Um, thoughts on Everton announcing a new stadium here in the past? I think they just did this in the past week, right? Yeah, it was just crazy. Like if you if you're any kind of sports fan, you know you like to see you know when a, a team spends a bunch of money on a new facility. You should definitely watch the video of, of them launching the because um, they kind of have this like three D aerial drone view of the stadium and it coming together and what it looks like with people like a little architectural geo design um definitely give that a watch just search on twitter um it looks insane um, it looks awesome it looks awesome right I guess it's on the water it's about like 500 million pounds i think they said and of course we needed a narrative about a new season or a new stadium being built this season because spurs finally finished theirs so now we have a new one that we can talk about It'll drag on and on and on, and then they'll finally play there eventually, right? Yep, absolutely. Got to replace that. So that'll be cool. I mean, I actually, I kind of admire Everton as a club. I have a little bit of a soft spot for them. And the stadium looks sick. Um, you know, they'll, they'll have to renew their, their rivalry with Liverpool there. I, I feel like Goodison Park is kind of a classic stadium, but it was definitely older and you know, good for them, I guess. It'll be cool. Yeah, and then there was also the, the video that came out the other day. Uh, Mesut Ozil and uh, Siad uh, Kolasinic were together after an Arsenal match training. Um, it, it, it wasn't a match, I don't think. I think it was on the way to training or on the way back from training they were driving together. Uh, if you haven't seen the video, you probably aren't listening to our pod either because like, I feel like it was pretty much it was out there for anyone that likes, likes football, but these guys like coming and stop the car, Ozil stays in the driver's seat, or in the passenger seat, Klasnich gets out and fights off everybody. They were, they were saying they had like machetes and stuff, they got masks on, and it's just like such a classic move from Ozil too, to not get involved. But it brought me to a question, and I think Klasnich is an obvious answer for this, so I wanted to get your take. If you were in Mesut Ozil's shoes there, and you're a famous person, you're driving home from training, and three guys come up with masks and machetes trying to rob you. Which Premier League player would you like to have in the car with you to back you in the fight there? So it's an excellent question. Um, I'm inclined to think, and most people would think of like a massive center back or goalkeeper who's like huge, who could just, you know, step in and do some damage, you know? Um, I'm actually going to say Jamie Vardy. Oh, 
my god, that's what I was gonna say. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Vardy is an absolute psycho. I feel like he would go like full Tasmanian devil um, and like pull out some yeah, like, out of his sock like some blade and just you know um, like he'd bite someone's ear off in a fight like that. He would just go full psycho. I'm so mad. I came up with this question like right before we started recording, and the person that I was gonna say was Jamie Vardy because I agree, he's just a total psychopath. He's like the guy in the bar that like you would think you could kick his ass, and then he would knock out like you and three of your friends. I feel like. He's yeah, hundred percent. Like, maybe he, he's definitely not afraid of anything. Right. Maybe if if not him, maybe someone who's like pretty big and pretty strong. Um, trying to think like uh, maybe a harry mcguire he's a pretty imposing figure he's a big guy um, yeah i've got uh, i've got no one really outside of that who's like very intimidating for uh, as a as a forward i don't know uh, probably well he's not in the prem technically right now but mitrovic is another guy i would probably not want to mess with yeah any serbian i uh, maybe luca yeah as well it's kind of that, like that like luca would be a good pick yeah that's true Anyway, um, that was wild. Hopefully that hopefully Arsenal security steps it up a little bit here. And yeah, tweet us your tweet us your thoughts on that one, guys. If you yeah, get, maybe, you maybe we'll get some people that we can uh, we'll get a little Twitter thread going there. But if you guys have someone better than Vardy or Kalasnich, let us know. And then the last thing that we wanted to talk about was kind of just like goes into kits in general, but really interesting. If you saw this on Twitter as well, uh, the Huddersfield kit announcement, which went down, they unveiled probably the worst kits that anyone had ever seen with a big Patty Power sash sponsorship across the front and then ended up being this marketing campaign from Patty Power called Save Our Shirts and they've un- unveiled it with a few other clubs now as well South and Newport Motherwell where they're not putting their sponsorship on any kits and that's kind of their way of marketing it so I thought that was really really cool I don't know if you have any thoughts on it Jack but when we, we first saw the, the Huddersfield kit announcement we were freaking out, and people were like, this has to be fake, this can't be real, it can't be real. It turns out it wasn't, uh, but any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of genius, like, uh, the, hey, we're going to be the best, we're going to sponsor this by not sponsoring it, like, creates, you know, the ultimate reverse psychology, and you actually hear a lot these days, like, I heard a lot with the Palace kits, and, you know, because a lot of these sponsors are... Like, for example, Villa are sponsored by a gambling site who also sponsors Wolves. So the big gambling, Asian gambling sites and platforms and that encourage a lot of sport betting. Um, and Villa actually wasn't allowed to wear them on their preseason tour in the States. They had to wear a shirt without a sponsor. And so you get these kind of, I don't know, these, these weird logos. Like, some are in, like, different languages that you don't really under, like, you maybe don't speak or you can't read. Um, and then that's on the middle of your kit. So you're walking around, like, you know, as you're a Palace fan, like, two years ago you're walking around with this, like, you know, awesome home jersey, and then there's this like man bat X, like Asian betting site that you don't even know what that is. You've never logged onto it before, and it like it's right in the middle of your kit. And they uh, still have that this year. Also, yeah. um, sorry to interrupt, but Cardiff, the Visit Malaysia one. That was super weird. Yeah, it, it, like, and they're, and they're they're like a big, they're bigger. The, the those sponsorships and the really kid are actually bigger than the crest, uh, the club crest. Um, so it's not like it's like a, uh, I don't know, you think of like an NHL jersey, right? You have the big logo in the front, name on the back, and then maybe you'll have a sponsorship on the sleeve or something or a, or a patch on the on the chest. Like the sponsorship is bigger than the logo itself. So um, I don't know. It kind of it, it made me think about kits and, and what I follow and like what I like. One of the good things about international football is you don't have those sponsorships on the international kits. Um, which right. Really well, the other thing too is like if one of my team's uh, – did that without the sponsorship like i would it would make me want to buy that kit a lot more 100 percent. we see like fans like asking for clubs to sell kits without the sponsorship on it and the fact that they don't have it and that's their kit they're gonna be wearing all year is really really cool so i thought it was a, a really clever idea i don't know if we'll see more of that in the future or not but yeah, we'll it's out. kind of a genius marketing move and there's a reason we're talking about them it obviously worked it's creating right. buzz for them so cool um all right let's get into the the meat of it all let's get into transfer transfer news and takes based on the summer so um what we're gonna do we'll talk a little bit about team by team um chris any teams um you know kind of what trends are you noticing in the table uh i know you talked you and i were talking a little bit beforehand about what you're noticing on the top six sides and top six sides and i'll give you kind of my take on what i'm seeing on the rest of the table yeah so i kind of had i don't know if this is really a hot take or not but my overall takeaway i guess so far from the window which always seems so crazy. There's always so many rumors going on, all these moves going all over the place, is that 
I really feel like there this hasn't been that crazy of a window, in my opinion, compared to other years. And the reason why I say that is taking a look at the top half of the table, and specifically like the top six teams that we think about, there haven't been a ton of moves. There have been a few pretty big ones, but most of these clubs are really like honing in on one or two, one or two main targets, and that's where they're spending most of their money. So when I say that, I look at Arsenal, who really haven't spent any money and now are about to sign Nicolas Pepe for like 72 million. Um, that's going to be like their only big signing thus far. You look at Manchester City; they've signed two players in Rodri uh, for about 80 million, I think. Uh, and then Angelino for a little bit less. Uh, you look at Manchester United, they've signed Daniel James and Aaron Wan-Bissaka. Liverpool have signed basically nobody. Uh, Spurs have signed Tangate and, and, uh, and Dembele from Lyon. And, like, really, that's all, none of these clubs are making more than one or two signings at this point. So we have about a week and a half left here for that to change. But um, my overall takeaway right now is when you look at the top, uh, portion of the table, a lot of these teams are going to look pretty similar to how they looked last year, in my opinion. Yeah, if anything, they're going to look uh, thinner because a lot of that, a lot of them have have had departures. Eden Hazard's left Chelsea. Alvaro Alvar Morales left Chelsea. Um, you know, you've seen some uh, like I. I think it's interesting what you're you're seeing a shift in the way uh, or Kieran Trippier has left Spurs. You're seeing a shift in the way that some of these top teams are operating, and I think it's a- actually on the you're kind of seeing maybe the back end of the bell curve of the of the massive transfer blip that we've seen over the last five years with some of these spends going to absurd levels, where teams can't afford to go out and buy the type of quality that they want at multiple positions. They just can't. Um, you know, the, the summers of buying, uh, you know, Hazard, Costa, uh, Cesc Fabregas, um, and, you know, four international players for under $100 million is gone, right? Aston Villa have racked up well over $100 million without buying any proven internationals this summer, right? Um, and, and I don't know, I, I think you were seeing behavior of these top six sides where they're trying to find more sustainability and they're being forced to, given the market, look inwards and look to developing their youth um, and also looking to, to kind of strengthen the, the squads that they have and buy more shrewdly. Right, and I think when you, when you look at it as well, kind of the impact or the fallout from some of this is uh, there's two teams in particular, actually, I guess you can make the case for three different teams that I felt like kind of needed to have pretty impactful windows. Look at Arsenal and United. Uh, both were a bit of a mess defensively last year. And between those two clubs, uh, right now, Arsenal, we haven't reassured or like, up their defense at all. And United got Wan-Bissaka right back. They're trying to get Harry Maguire in still, but that's not a done deal. But both those teams had big, big needs defensively. You look at a team like Spurs, where their biggest weakness last year, maybe the year before, is they don't have a lot of depth, right? Um, you know, Harry Kane goes down, some of these players go down, and they're scrambling. They don't really have a, a reliable backup goal scorer. Sun was great last year, but where you could see them adding a few different squad players. And all three of those clubs, they've made a couple of moves, but I don't think any of them have put themselves in a spot where I'd feel super confident that they've improved or have really fixed their issues to make a push at a top top spot or a top two spot this year. Um, yeah. City at Liverpool, you know, they've made City have made a couple of signings, but those are the teams that already had the depth and had better squads. And so I don't know if these other four clubs have done enough to bridge that gap. We talked about all year last year where there was these two teams at the top and a huge gap between, you know, two and three, right? Right, and I think that's where you're going to see the top teams really separate themselves is who have the best coaches, right? And I think that's why I, that's why I have some belief in Unai Emery at Arsenal because I do think he's a good tactical coach of the game. And I think that the team that the clubs that were going to separate themselves at the top of the table are, you know, the the teams that have the best on-field development of talent coaches. Uh, someone like Dean Smith at Villa who, you know, is proven to to get some players to the next level. Obviously, that's a, a different end of the table, but um you know, it is really interesting that the summers of these massive, you know, Man City going and buying a, you know, there, there hasn't been any radical changes of ownership in the Prem. So these summers of Man City going and buying that, you know, 10 guys for 500 million, they're just gone with financial fair play and, and how inflated the market is. It's just too much of a squeeze. Yeah. And then I think the other thing that you could see that might be a little bit of um, a storyline to look at is 
unless there's a, a big change here over the next week, week and a half with some of these clubs, you know, adding depth. You're right about the coaching, but some teams that have made moves, and we'll kind of get into it, are the uh, the Leicesters, the Evertons, the West Hams, Wolves that are right on that cusp of maybe being able to challenge for sixth place. They've done a little bit more business, and so maybe those teams have some more opportunity than we've seen in the last few years to kind of bridge that gap. So, mm-hmm. you know, overall, um, it'll be interesting to see, but I'm, my, I guess my biggest takeaway is I kind of expected more from a lot of these teams yeah. uh, than what I've seen so far. I think I think you can kind of segment the table into four different groups. I think there's like the top uh, five or six, which is the – uh, the top teams who have just gone after identified one target, two targets in a position, and they just tried to get that, right? And then you have that second wave, which is exactly what you're talking about, teams who have gone out and signed a couple different guys. You look at a Leicester who have spent 30-odd million on uh, Jose Perez, signed Yuri Tillman's officially, um, who spent a decent chunk of change, West Ham's in that bucket. Um, and then you look at, like, the third tier of the of the Prem, which is teams who are just, uh, you know, they have maybe one or two signings, um, uh, or, or they have a few signings that they've made, but all very, very cheap. Um, and then you get the bottom half, the, the very bottom of the of the prem, which is player teams who just like haven't really done that much. And there's a few teams there like Crystal Palace, Bournemouth, Brighton, um, who have made like two to four signings total and not spent a bunch of money at all. Yeah, and again, we have a little bit of time left here, so we were going to talk a little bit about maybe you know, do we see any other moves? happening right now so a couple of the names that are still floating out there that are the big ones at least specific to the premier league harry mcguire it seemed like that was a done deal to united for about 80 million he hasn't officially signed lester announcing that they don't want to sell um, but he apparently has been not showing up to training really really wants to move so that's one that we could see happening uh romelu lukaku keeps getting linked with inter uh, that might make be a move that we see, and then obviously Will Zaha has been linked with Arsenal, now Everton, uh, a couple of their clubs. So, I mean, any anything that you expect to happen here in the next week? Any clubs you expect to make moves? Any players? No, I, I think I think maybe we'll see Harry Maguire go over the line, and uh, maybe we see Lukaku as well. I don't expect Zaha to leave. Um, but I think again, it comes down to maybe there'll be one team that buckles and goes out and spends. You know, eat. You know swallows their pride and spends way too much money to buy one of these players but again i just think it's too much of a pinch for some of these teams where uh, with financial fair play and with their profit margins like they're not making enough money to be able to shell out 100 million on like the only teams that can have been able to afford that this summer have been real madrid who have bought you know five different guys for north of 40 million yeah i mean speaking of 100 million another one i saw was uh spurs being linked with Paulo dybala for about 100 million but it just doesn't seem like a signing that Spurs would make. They don't really spend that much, and they already made a pretty big, expensive signing. Right. So I don't really see that happening. But, you know, I'd be shocked if we didn't see one or two other pretty big moves happen. You just don't necessarily know what they're going to come from. I would say out of the ones we've talked about, though, it's probably Harry Maguire that's most likely. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, so then I guess I expect him to do well for United, but the signings that have been made so far, who do you think is your best signing of the summer? Who, do you, who are you giving the best grade to so far? Yeah, um, as far as just one player coming in, I think the one that I would say, there's a little bit of bias here, but I think the best signing was actually Aaron Wan-Bissaka to Man United. Um, We've got to see him play for Palace for over a year. Defensively, he's just incredibly gifted. He's very young. He's English. Uh, They had to spend 50 mil on him, which is a lot for a young defender, Uh, but he fills an obvious need that they have. They were really thin defensively, especially at fullback. He's someone that should be able to plug in right away. And, you know, assuming that he doesn't get injured or doesn't fall off a cliff, you think that's a guy that you can have at the club for five, ten years and be an effective player for you. So when it comes down to the price tag, I really don't think it was overpaying for that. And I think he's going to be a huge impact player for United this year. So I would go with Bambasaka. Yeah, a little bit of bias there. It's been sad to see Alon Basak has been all over his Instagram posting with Pogba. His followers count went way up. Yeah, it's so annoying. You know he's going to get called up immediately. Um, so there are there's a f- quite a few signings I could point to in the Aston Villa team, which, uh, again, a bit of bias that I'm really excited to buy. Uh, Trezeguet being a really exciting one, the uh, Egyptian uh, Egyptian winger, bought him for just £8 million. Pounds. Um, but um, I'm going st- to go with signing of the summer uh, that I've seen – 
that I'm really excited to see, and I think, again, fills a really obvious need, is Sebastian Haller, um, the German striker who's going to be in the, uh, who came from Eintracht Frankfurt, um, who's going to be in the West Ham side this season. I think West Ham, that team is so desperate for a goal scorer. They've tried out every type of goal scorer. They've tried out the poacher and Chicharito, the big man and Andy Carroll. Seem to have no consistency. Uh, and they've got a decent team around him, right? They've got Lanzini. They've got Felipe Anderson. Um, they've got Fornals, who they just signed this season. They've got, quite, you know, and Mikael Antonio, if they, who they've been forced to play up top. Really, really needed a number nine. And uh, Sebastian Haller made uh, Jovic look really good at Eintracht Frankfurt last year. Um, he's a good distributor, can hold up the ball, score goals himself, big, powerful lad, good athlete, great work ethic. Bought him for 40, uh, 45 million pounds, I think. Um, yep. And so I think he'll be very, very classy. And all of a sudden, in my mind, I'm actually a little nervous to play West Ham, um, whereas I've never really been that fearful of playing against them because they don't really have a true goal scorer. Well, I mean, and uh, they lost Arnautovic for not a lot of money um, because he kind of forced their hands, so they needed to replace him. I think it's a lot of money to spend, but he he scored goals last year. I'm just, you know, I'm worried a little bit whether or not a lot of that had to do with who he was playing with because that Eintracht uh, Frankfurt team was really talented. But I agree. I mean, he's a physical specimen. I think he's going to be pretty good for them. Yeah. And uh, they've made a lot of moves. Okay. Um, that was your best signing of the summer so far. Yes. What is your most perplexing signing? You, you use this word. We didn't want to pick worst signing because it's a little bit tough to, to speculate and we you know hope for the best of these players. But perplexing, which one made you raise your eyebrows the most? Exactly. So it's like tough, right? Because like, so, you know, one of these signings we could see and be like, oh, this is a crap signing. And then they go on and score 20 goals a season and we're like, all right, well, what the hell do we know? Like these, these scouts have jobs for a reason. One I was really, really interested by, not only by the player, but also the team, is Ravel Morrison going to Sheffield United. So Ravel Morrison's a blade. Ravel Morrison's a former Manchester United Academy graduate, was touted as one of their next really, really strong uh, central attacking midfielders, kind of like the next almost like Beckham kind of playmaker in, in that cam role. Um, and had a big attitude, uh, got some appearances, I think, when he was like 17, went on loan a few times, um, and just fell out with every manager who he ever played for. Uh, no one liked playing him, had a really bad attitude, wasn't showing up to training, wasn't fit. Just kind of, you know, one of those classic young, young, talented players who like fell through the cracks and never put it together. Um, he's kind of bopped around, uh, played around Europe in some lower leagues over the past few years. I think he played in Turkey for a little while, maybe went to like played in Sweden, Sweden, last year. yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, I'm really interested to see how he pans out this season and with just fitting into the Sheffield United team as well, like they are going to need some kind of playmakers. Sheffield United are famous from having a lot of their attacking play come from like their outside center backs um, as well as their wing play. And I don't know how that's going to fare in the Prem. It's just a very interesting team, that Sheffield United team. That's just like a bunch of like guys from the playground who like went from playing non-league football a few, a few years ago or like, you know, playing in league one um, three, four years ago to now being in the Premier League. And now he fits in as someone who's like been on the stardom side, combining with some of these players who have never really been on the Premier League stage. Um, it's a very unique combination. It could be someone who like has a really high ceiling and he goes on and has a monster season, um, or more than likely, I bet you he flops and never really puts it together. So um, yeah, Ravel Morrison for my most perplexing signing of the summer. Interesting. I like that pick. I went in a little bit of a different route here. Uh, someone that was more expensive so I actually don't know the best way to pronounce this but I'm going to go with two different options so it's either Joelinton or Joelinton I think it's Joelinton though so he was uh, signing for Newcastle obviously we talked a little bit about Newcastle here uh, getting Steve Bruce in they um, you know had a lot of issues with not having a transfer budget not spending a lot of money uh, Joel Linton is actually their record signing. Uh, there's some mixed reports on the fee. It's somewhere between 40 and 50 million. Uh, and they signed him from Hoffenheim. So he's a forward. I expect him to play quite a bit. Um, I'm just not too sure that it's going to work out. Last season, he scored seven goals. And it seems like they're going to be using him in a, a central forward role here. He's a 22 year old Brazilian. And it just seems like a, a crazy high fee to be spending on one player. When, if you look at the Newcastle side, they probably need to make a few different signings to really bolster that. Um, so I just don't see that one working out, at least in the short term here. 
uh, whether they're going to get a, a good return on the amount of money they spent there. So I was a little perplexed that they actually went out and spent that big on a player. Yeah, and also, like, you feel like they just let go of Salman Rondon, who is a very similar player, right? Big hold-up player who, um, you know, the, he, he just went – he left the club and – I think they had him on loan last season. They could have bought him back or got him on the cheap, and then they went. They got rid of Rafa, who wanted, uh, you know, who wanted him, and now they have Joel Linton, who's, I mean, a big money signing. So we'll see. We'll see. I mean, who knows? We might be wrong, but I also don't think in that system he's going to be set up for success. So we'll find out. Well, that's why I can't be wrong, Jack, because I didn't say he's a bad signing. It's perplexing. True, true, true. So there's really no way that this take could be wrong because I'm just perplexed by it. You know, perplexed. Um, all right, so teams you're imp- impressed with then, Chris, uh, based on uh, summer business, who you're impressed by? Yeah, so uh, you're going to talk about Villa, who made a big splash. So we'll get into that in a second. I picked a different team here just to kind of um, make sure that we weren't coming up with all the same takes here. And I went with Leicester, which I thought quietly have had a very good window. Uh, they actually got who you just mentioned, Iosi Perez from Newcastle earlier in the pod which uh, I think will be a good move for them. He's uh, a good, versatile attacking player, can kind of play all across that front line, only 26. They did spend a lot on him. I think it was about 35 to 40 million. Uh, but he should be a good player that will kind of fit right in there and give them some a little bit more youth up front when you think about some other players that are aging, like, um, like Jamie Vardy. They lost Riyad Mahrez. So they got to replace some of those players. The more important move, though, uh, is actually signing Yuri Tillemans on uh, a permanent deal. They loaned him out uh, for the second half of the season last year in January, and he was phenomenal for them. He had five assists and three goals in 13 Premier League appearances. Cost him about $50 million to get him from Monaco, but he's 22. He's just really, really fun to watch. So I think being able to get him permanently, uh, they made a couple other smaller moves here and there. Uh, but they were a team that already was pretty good, and those are two very uh, big impact players for them. So I think quietly they've had a very impressive window, and I think they'll have a really good season coming up. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I like Tealmans. I think I think it's important when you sign a player who does well, and then going back and buying them. It can always be always be tough to do because you inflate their value. So it's like by loaning a player, you actually make yourself pay more in the long run, which is a kind of a frustrating concept. Um, and on that sa- in that same vein, um, Aston Villa, I think, have done easily the best business in this window, um, which I guess some might say is a hot take, some might say isn't, because they've spent the most money in the Premier League by a lot. They're the only team to spend over 100 million pounds this summer. Um, and they are just on an absolute bender of a spending spree. Um, so to give you a quick rundown of who they signed, they signed Diego Yotta from Birmingham City, Blue Nose Scum, um, but he's on the good side of town now. Um, they signed Anwar Al-Ghazi from Lille, who was on loan last season. Um, Wesley from Club Bruges, a Brazilian striker, first Brazilian in Aston Villa Club history. Courtney House from Wolves, who was on loan last season. Uh, Matt Target from Southampton, outside back, um, very young as well, former England under 21. Tyrone Mings, who was on loan last season uh, from Bournemouth. Uh, Esri Konsa from Brentford, who used to play with Dean Smith. Jordan Engels, uh, central defender from Stad Reims, um, who is just a good ball player and also a big lad as well in the air. Like I said, Trezeguet from Kasimpasa uh, in the Turkish League. Uh, very affordable buy. And Douglas Luiz, uh, central holding midfielder from Manchester City, who captains the Brazilian under-23s. So a lot of signings right there to get through. Definitely a mouthful. What's really impressive and, un- and important to understand, though, I think about the business that Villa's done this summer, one, they've done it early, right? So a lot of these players, um, you know, th- there's, a, there's a week and a half to go in the deadline, and you feel like their team is already very, very deep. Uh, not only did they go out and get some some names that are are you know, big and big step up, big step ups from what, what the kind of players they had last year, they also all have chemistry, right? Tyrone Mings, El Ghazi were on loan last season. Yota has played for Dean Smith at Brentford. So is Esri Konsa. Um, he's scouted Bajoran Engels for three years and has been trying to get him at Brentford for three years. Um, Douglas Louise uh, is is coming from the academy at Manchester City um, and has been someone that he's Dean Smith wanted for four years. Um, Trezeguet comes in and plays with an international teammate of El Mahamedy. So, you know, you look at a lot of these players, uh, and a couple of them were on loan last season, three of them were, um, and you think that there's already a bit of a chemistry piece there. And I feel like 
you know, Fulham last year spent a lot of money and didn't have the chemistry piece. They kind of bought Sherla and John Michael Seri, and there wasn't really a link between a lot of these players, but you feel like when you look at all these Villa signings, there's logic and chemistry behind each one, which makes me think of that. Well, not only is it aggressive business, but it's intelligent business as well. Um, and, and they also got rid of a lot of wage budget with, you know, Glenn, Glenn Whelan, Micah Richards, Ross McCormack, Millie Yednek, Alan Hutton, Richie DeLay, Albert Adoma, a lot of, a lot of their big earners that helped, uh, helped them over the last two years they got rid of as well. Yeah, I mean, as, as someone who likes Villa, I'm extremely excited to see how it turns out for them. And I agree with you in the sense that I think most of this business for them was very smart business. I think the concern, though, is it, it's really high turnover. Uh, with, you know, there's a handful of guys that were big pieces of their team last year that are not around, and they're going to be inserting a lot of new players in here. Um, but I, I do agree that, you know, having some of these guys come back from loans and guys that they've scouted for a while will be helpful. And I think the other thing that's really impressive with Villa is how early in the window that they did a lot of this business. These guys have been playing together for the summer, and, you know, um, bringing a guy in the last week or so of the window, it takes a little bit longer to integrate into to training and get into the squad. Most of these players have had a month or two to train, play in friendlies together. I think that will help them get off to a little bit of a quicker start as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I truly think that if, if Villa are, at the end of the season, you know, not a minimum of five places above uh, either Sheffield United or Norwich in the table, I, I will be absolutely out, astounded. Um, I think that this they've done is very, very intelligent. Um, and I'm I, as a Villa season ticket holder and fan, someone who just w- flew to Minnesota two weeks ago to watch them play Minnesota FC um, in their preseason tour. I am, I'm thrilled. I'm really, really excited. Yeah, it'll be good. And then um, last thing we wanted to cover here is a team that we're a little bit nervous or scared for here, based off of the business they've done this summer. Uh, I guess I'll start here. So. I picked Crystal Palace. I think there's a couple different ways to look at their summer so far. Uh, The the one that scares me is the fact that they've basically brought in no new players. uh, (laughs) I was about to say, what what different ways are there to look at this? I'm I'm really curious. I'm going to give you a bright side in a second here. Uh, Their two signings so far are Steven Henderson, uh, a third-string keeper on a free, and Jordan Ayew, who they actually had last year on loan that they bought for like $2.5 million, uh, who was basically just a bench player for them. Uh, the biggest loss is Juan Basaka to United, but other than that, they didn't really lose anybody that played a lot for them last year. So, like I said, the the scary part here is they haven't brought in anybody that's going to be very impactful for them, and there's a couple of positions that they need to. They definitely need a right, a right back now to replace Juan Basaka. Um, I don't think that they want to go into the season with their only striker choices really being Christian Menteke and Connor Wickham. Uh, they need some depth on the wing. The only positive here is, as of right now, they still have their best player in Wilfred Zaha. And the way things are trending, I, it, by all uh, predictions that I could make, I think he's going to stay, uh, at least for, for this window. So if you keep your best player that has been linked with every club basically on earth for the last three seasons, uh, I think that's, that's a win right there, right? But the scary thing is they should have all this money to reinvest by selling... Juan Basaka for 50 mil, and they're not really linked with anybody. Uh, they don't really seem to be targeting anyone that's going to like be a solid contributor coming in in the next week and a half. There's a little bit of time that they might be able to sneak somebody in, but you know they were good last year. That's the other thing to keep in mind. They finished uh, well out of the relegation zone. They were safe for the last couple months of the season. So if that's what they're content with, Maybe they'll be able to do that again here with pretty much the same squad, but it doesn't really inspire a lot of hope in the fan base that they haven't done anything and their manager, Roy Hodgson, is going out in the, the media and basically saying, yeah. we need defenders, we need players, I'm not getting any money or support. That's not really something that you get excited about. So that's that's where you get a little bit of nervous uh, nervousness here from Palace. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of hints of the, of the Rafa-Ashley situation where, I, you know, I'm not getting what I need. Um, and you know, every now and then there seems to be a rumor of Palace going to sell. Um, it's it, it it it's not good, and it's like literally the opposite of of, of Villa, where Palace ha- haven't you know the business they've done. Clearly, they're trying to be very very shrewd, um, and the and the reason being is because right now they they're actually in a storm financially that they have created for themselves. 
Um, their, their revenue isn't very strong. You look at their earnings. Um, they, they don't have massive attendances because their stadium isn't huge. They don't have massive international revenue from you know, a significantly large international fan base of, uh, in terms of merchandise. Um, they, you know, they haven't been – I mean, they th- I think went to Switzerland last, last summer um, from their preseason tour. Like, I don't think – the infrastructure is in place for Palace to go and spend big, and they spend a lot on wages. They have one of the, you know, Wilfred Zaha is on 125,000 pounds a week. He makes more than anyone on Everton does right now, and he's linked with Everton. No one on Everton makes 120,000 pounds a week. So, um, that you know, that that's top four wages easily. Um, so I think they they're kind of in this bed that they made for themselves. Max Meyer's on 100k a week. Um, they want to sign some of these big, yeah. They want to sign some of these big names and big players, and now their wage bill is so high, but the revenue is not not high enough. And so now they're in this caught in this weird awkward place where like, eh, we we kind of set a precedent that the people we sign we pay them a lot. Like, what happens if we sign a player who's supposed to play instead of Benteke and he makes 40k a week less than Benteke, right? Like. That might not work. Um, yeah, and the other thing that's tough is selling Wampasaka. You get 50 mil in the transfer fee, but you don't really clear a lot of wages with that because it wasn't a high earner. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, he was a former academy product. So it, 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 you kind of feel like and, – and that's one of the things that I'm starting to notice a lot more with this window. All the business that clubs have done I think have been very indicative of their management style and the type of financial situation that the club is in. Pivoting back to what we were talking about earlier with you know these top clubs – not really going after a bunch of targets, but having one or two key guys that they want to go out and buy. They're almost willing to recognize that, hey, the market is is going to demand a really strong fee. Like, we have to pay 60, 70, 80 odd million for Rodri if, man, if we really want him more Man City. Um, but they're not going after a bunch of guys. So you have to be very intelligent about the type of player you buy for your team. Um, and then, you know, you look at Palace, who the only way they can afford to go and do that is if they sell their best few players. Um, and so... You know, it, it, it. I think a lot of the teams. You know, you look at like Bournemouth, who haven't really signed anybody. Norwich have done all their business with under less than 1.5 million in spend. Um, clearly, not expecting to to be around for the long haul. Kind of like Huddersfield did. Um, Sheffield have spent a little bit of money, but not much more than Norwich. So they're they're kind of like you know you know kind of. Um, on for the ride this season to see what happens. Um, and then you have some other teams that are kind of like comfortable and somehow have found a way to survive in the Prem without spending that much um, or kind of goes in ebbs and flows. Bournemouth goes in ebbs and flows. They're not spending anything this summer. Um, Burnley never spend anything because they only, you know, they only ever get players who are f- from 10, 10 miles or less from Burnley's, Burnley's ground. So um, it's just interesting to see like the different management philosophies and being applied to their business and, and, and the way they're allowed to dictate, dictate their own behavior in the market. I think it's very, very interesting um, and something you're seeing the personalities of teams and their ambition being very, very clear in the business that they're doing this summer, um, which is so encouraging on the flip side with Villa. Um, right. And I think in that same vein, um, to, to kind of wrap up here, teams who I'm also uh, not scared for because I'm excited because I would like to love to see them struggle, Brighton. Uh, Brighton uh, have bought like this Belgian winger Troussard, um, who's yeah, all right. Um, that's it. They've got rid of Chris Hutton as their manager, um, and like I don't really know. I mean, they they don't have the best team. They got rid of Anthony Knockhart. They they just don't have the best team. They haven't spent wisely in the past few windows. Um, they're they also don't have a massive infrastructure, and so they I think they have potential to go down the season. Um, and they haven't really upgraded anywhere. Um, and you know, all, a lot of their goals came from Glenn Murray last season. He's 36 now, so uh, they need a central forward, and I don't feel like they have that. Um, and I'm also a very 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 scared for Newcastle. They just put all their money, it seems like, the center forward, and I think the rest of their team needs a lot of work. Um, I actually think Rondon was all right for them last season, and they just got rid of Perez. I don't, I don't think where they're lacking is up top necessarily. I mean, maybe uh, you know Jolinton come in and have a, a few, score a few goals, but I think they they really really lack in kind of attacking midfield um, as well as on the wings. So um, I don't think they've bought well, and I don't think they will buy well because I don't think that's what Steve Bruce has been brought there to do. Yeah, and obviously we'll get a little bit more into uh, like season-long predictions next week, but these are more just indicative of what people, what teams have done over the window here. Uh, anything else as far as transfer business you want to talk about, Jack? No, I mean, that's pretty much it. Um, again, really excited for Villa. We'll try and not be so, you know, it, it's tough. There's We have three, Chris and I have like two and a half months of non-pod action, so I feel like we're really letting our 
our bias come through on this pod. Yeah. Um, but what, we, what, we were excited to talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but we'll have we'll have a lot coming at you guys soon with season predictions. Uh, we'll come out with a forecasted table. Um, we'll also take a look at projected team of the seasons and awards um, and rehash where some of us finished uh, last season. We'll factor that in and also maybe get back into doing trivia because um, I feel like I, I ended last season on a roll. Yeah, I'm already nervous for trivia. <laughs> Uh, so make it easy on me but yeah next week we'll come out probably on Monday again um, recording our preview with predictions and and what to look for in the season and then we should be back to our uh, weekly pods of um, just kind of going week by week throughout the season but it's definitely been good to be back hopefully the quality comes through uh, with the remote recording here this week but um, you know definitely follow along on Twitter leave us a review if you can and, and make sure you subscribe to the pod if you're listening and give us some feedback. We want to make sure that we're, uh, you know, talking about what people want to hear and, and keeping things interesting. But it's been good to be back. I'm excited for the upcoming season. Yeah, cheers, guys. Thanks for listening. As always, just goes to show. Everybody's human. Look forward to catching you next week, guys. Thanks.